This is a podcast from Cambridge Assessment. For more downloads, visit cambridgeassessment.org.uk. Well, welcome, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Paul Newton from the Cambridge Assessment Network Division. OK, well, this is uh, a current issues and assessment uh, seminar with a twist. And the twist is that it's a presentation followed by an invited response. Uh, our presenter today is Tim Oates, who's Group Director at Cambridge Assessment, uh, and our discussant is going to be Dr Mary Bowsted, who's General Secretary of the Association of Teachers and Lecturers. And the focus of our seminar today is the link between textbooks and examinations. Now, I twisted Tim's arm to present the positive case uh, in favour of a link between textbooks and examinations. Uh, I think it was somewhere in the middle of uh, last year. Um, so... He seems to be having a lot to say about the subject, uh, and it seems to be a very uh, topical and interesting uh, thing to be talking about. And no one else seems to be presenting the positive case, so I'm very glad, Tim, that you can come along uh, and talk to us about it today. In the meantime, we had the events of last year and the select committee review, uh, and the topic seems to have uh, grown in importance. So uh, all the better that we did that preparatory thinking, I think, Tim. Okay, um, I'm going to ask Tim to open the, pre- uh, the, sc- the session today and then we'll go straight into the discussant's comments and then I'll open up the floor to everyone to uh, contribute to the discussion. First of all, I'll say just a few words to introduce the speakers. Um, Mary comes from a teaching background. Uh, she taught English to comprehensive schools in North London before moving into higher education. Um, and in academia, she worked for um, York University, Edge Hill University uh, and later at Kingston University where she was the head of the School of Education. Um, Mary contributes to newspapers, Um, she contributes to education journals, she made numerous media appearances as well, Um, on the uh, Executive Committee of the Trade Union Congress and also a friend of Cambridge Assessment. Uh, Mary came to our 2010 conference (coughs) as part of the discussion panel then, so it's good to welcome you back Mary. Um, Tim started his career as a uh, research officer at the University of Surrey um, and his developing expertise in vocational education took him to the NCVQ, that's the National Council on Vocational Qualifications, and then later to the QCA, the Qualifications and Curriculum Authority, where he headed up the Research and Statistics Unit. Tim joined Cambridge Assessment in 2006 as a group director for assessment, research and development. And I think it's fair to say, Tim, um, you've brought a new focus to the research here. Um, helped us to assure that we stay ahead of the game, really, by keeping his finger firmly on the pulse of the education debate in the UK. And I think that's most clearly rewarded, maybe rewarded isn't the right word, <laughs> by his appointment as the chair of the expert panel for the uh, National Curriculum Review. So, once again, Mary, Tim, we're very glad that you can come and speak to us today. And, Tim, I'm going to hand over to you to start. Thank you. Right, thank you very much indeed, Paul, and, and welcome, everybody. Um, I will go back to 2006, because when I... I joined Cambridge. I had discussions with the then chief executive of OCR. Um, and uh, Greg and I talked about the importance of what we were referring to at the time as cu- curriculum projects. Now, what I said was that we seem to have lost um, a grip of some very important innovations in the education system, which had occurred during the 1970s and 1980s, which had given rise to things like SMP mathematics and uh, Nuffield science where there were very tightly linked uh, materials and examinations. And they, by and large, assumed the form of, of groups of schools or educationalists getting together to devise an interesting and engaging curriculum which met a particular need in the system, uh, sometimes for the advancement of a particular subject or the engagement of particular groups of learners. 
But the idea was you started with a curriculum and you, you started with a purpose and an aim. You devised something which was particularly rewarding, engaging and state-of-the-art. And then you approached an awarding body to develop an examination for it. And the two were incredibly tightly linked. What was important about that, that there was no discourse or concern about reductivism or narrowing of the curriculum, that the linkage was actually seen as a very, very positive thing. And, and teachers welcomed it. And the, and the schemes indeed blossomed. If one was to apply a market test to them, they were a success. They, they were used massively. And that, that was, that's the first kind of observation I, I, I bring to this presentation today. The second is a thought I want to leave you with uh, and then return to at the end. And you may think, what on earth is he going on about? But I want to talk about Norman Foster and urbanism because Norman Foster's idea is we're not decaying to some kind of disgusting dy- dystopian future where people fail to get on with one another, living in close proximity. He actually thinks cities are an incredible success. Now, how is it that people can live in such close proximity and not engage in conflict? And indeed, what, what Norman Foster's thesis is that the kind of interaction you get in close proximity raises the quality of the urban environment. Now, that, that, that's quite interesting. It, it's not that people get on because they're regulated by law or indeed they're constantly monitored every minute of their activity because if they are not so monitored, they will misbehave, fall out and engage in conflict. Now, I just want to leave you with that thought because I want to return to that at the end. Two more observations before I start clicking buttons. If there is a problem with textbooks and examinations and their relationship, and it looks as everybody thinks that there is a problem, um, I'll come on to the, the Telegraph stories, the content of them in a second, and the Select Committee's discussion. Whose fault is it? Because that, that's what people are saying at the moment. But whose fault is it? You know, it, 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 it looks actually though it's the AB's, the awarding body's fault at the moment, actually, if you listen to what people are saying, that, that, that qualifications have become very narrowly focused and, and, and the awarding bodies have gained in a Faustian pact with the publishers to produce these very narrow very narrow uh, documents which really cramp individuals' learning and limit their, their opportunities and human, the human possibilities in their lives. So whose fault is it? Um, I think that's, that's an incredibly unsophisticated way into which to approach the problem. I believe if there is a problem, it's a problem of our times, and you have to unpack it very, very carefully, and that I'll try to do in the course of my presentation. But the starting point actually is the publishers themselves, because publishers are incredibly sophisticated and sensitive. And if there's one thing they do do, is that they respond to what markets are asking for. Um, They listen to teachers. They listen to teachers intently, and they produce what is being asked for. So I want to leave that thought with you, too, because that suggests that there's... There has to be considerable sophistication in our approach to this problem. Um, and the final sort of introductory point is this, is we're talking about textbooks and we're talking about examinations, um, but what about materials that are generated informally and are increasingly being shared on the internet? Look how successful TSL is internationally. Um, it's recently awarded a particular teacher um, given an award to a particular teacher who produced materials which in a few months were hit by over 40,000 students and teachers internationally. 
Um, and the index of quality there is then being picked up and used materially. Um, if you want to regulate textbooks or you want to regulate the relationship between textbooks and examinations, how on earth do you regulate uh, a, a waterfall of materials? Semi-formal, informal, some of them assuming the form of textbooks, some of them not, uh, which will be generated and shared very freely by electronic means internationally. So those are the kind of starting points. Um, and of course, this was where we got to at Christmas. Um, we had the revelations in the Telegraph. Um, they were principally associated with seminars in which particular briefing sessions were being given. And uh, the notion was that uh, there were undue insights into the content of examinations. A reassurance, of course, was given in respect to that, that later that no exam session, particular exam session, had been compromised. But the notion was that the whole, the whole pattern of information giving by those really moving between the communities of publishers and examining bodies were interested in a very narrow approach to learning, increasingly homing in on the minimum which is required to pass an examination. Uh, and that erring, that, that, that tipping over into um, giving undue uh, indications of the content of what a particular examination would contain. And the quote was this, the relationship between exam boards and textbook publishers has come under scrutiny after head teachers criticised the partnership between groups. So it had these three elements, examiners tipping off teachers, hints, tips and clear instructions from the examiners. And then the headline was textbook plan of one of the other articles that was on, on the same four or five pages, of twin page spreads in the Telegraph, more scrutiny on the boards. So the notion that something wrong is happening and that more scrutiny needs to be applied, more formal scrutiny from the centre. When undercover reporters from the Daily Telegraph attended an event by the WJEC, the speaker announced, outside you will find Rita from Hodder. And she wants you to know that this particular book, A+, although it doesn't say so specifically, and the whole discourse was of, we're letting you in on stuff that we shouldn't really tell you, is matched up by Hodder to the specification, such as it is. Okay, remarkable language, remarkable language. So this idea of narrowing, that something really adverse is happening in terms of educational aims and objectives associated with the curriculum, particularly in terms of uh, Key Stage 4 and in 16 to 19 education, and the pivotal role in examinations in determining what goes in. I mean, this isn't good. The la if, if you were, you know, in terms of man from Mars, or indeed just looking at what is happening in England from another nation, if you look to England as a centre of educational expertise, your inference would be that something serious is happening and that something dysfunctional is happening. The summary for one student, uh, uh, summary from one included a quote from a pupil, I only revised for my GCSE from this book and scored a high A star. We've heard Michael Gove talking about the extent to which, for English at Key Stage 4 GCSE, Many students, after a survey of schools, are actually only studying for one book for the examination, Of Mice and Men, by John Steinbeck. In other words, narrowing is occurring by virtue of our examination system. And the texts which are being written in support of the examinations and tightly coupled to them are furthering this narrowing. And then we see a head saying, badging system 
where endorsement occurs. You see books endorsed by Edexcel, endorsed by OCR, and you'd be, in essence, terrified to do anything other than buy that book before, because you would feel that you were, you were selling your students or your parents short by not buying the book which is optimised for that particular examination. And there was much discourse in the select committee, um, associate, and, and including particular authors, saying that they were very uneasy about the nature of this relationship. So all is not well, undoubtedly. And, and of course, I mean, you know, we've, we've run seminars where we've discussed this narrowing tendency and the narrow instrumentalism in the system. And this narrow instrumentalism was endorsed absolutely by the majority of the commentators in these three key sessions. I mean, of course, in session of the 15th of December, there was reassurance given by the chief executives uh, in respect of the training not crossing over the boundary into compromising the content of particular examination sessions. Um, and in the session of the 18th of January, I and others actually did talk about the extent to which the drivers in the system, accountability arrangements, are producing a culture, remember Norman Foster and the culture in cities, are producing a culture of narrowing, of narrow instrumentalism, of people being driven by targets and their behaviour being driven in particular directions. And that was reinforced in the session of the 21st of February, where textbook writers and providers discussed this in considerable detail. And there was much discussion of people assuming a role as, for example, a chief examiner and being a textbook author, and whether that relationship in itself had certain an, an internal dynamic which could be dysfunctional, i.e., well, I will write what I know is going to go into the examination. I'm not going to compromise the examination, but I'm going to focus intently on the topics which will come up. And perhaps that, 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 uh, relation, that tight relationship over time may lead to a narrowing of the domain which both the awarding body and the textbook producer focuses upon. I'll return to that right at the end. But, and this is where the but comes in, what we mustn't do, I believe, is just say, oh my God, and start to wave our hands in the air and saying, this is the problem we need to deal with. Because I think the way that that has been characterised gives a false understanding of what we should be doing in respect of policy. Because it suggests that some people in the system are doing something wrong and that by regulation we can stop them doing it. And I think that's a misconception. I think we have to understand the times in which we live and understand how we drive the system in an appropriate direction by using certain levers. And I think we need to step back and think hard and think long about how to reflect on the nature of our current circumstances. And I believe one of the best ways we can do that is through looking at other systems. Now, it's not an accident that Paul and I talked about this a long time ago because what happened was that in the course of the transnational comparisons that we were doing, um, both well in advance of the existing National Curriculum Review and at the outset of the National Curriculum Review, have essentially thrown light on this matter. And it's that that I want to run through extremely quickly and then invite comment from Mary. Because I think the next four or five minutes will just take you through what it is that we need to think through in order to really get the right sort of policy response in place. And I think, in essence, as, as Paul said, it's a positive, not a negative story, actually. What's clear is that in, in other systems, 
the relationship between textbooks and examinations is itself used as a policy instrument. Now, that, that, that's important. Okay? It's not considered to be a problem against which you have to write re- legislation to stop certain dysfunctional things that will automatically happen. No, it's actually used as a policy instrument. It's been used historically and is being used currently. And I'll run through this. You, you, you think about the, the curriculum in, in Hong Kong. So what you do is, you, in, if you're in England, you Google Hong Kong. You find a curriculum framework. It's a very interesting curriculum framework. It's very innovative in mathematics. You think, okay, that's their mathematics curriculum. Wrong. It's not their mathematics curriculum. Their mathematics curriculum is what goes on in the classroom. That's the national statement by the executive agency of the content which is prescribed by the state. That's what you find when you Google it. The enacted curriculum is complex. And what you find in Hong Kong are thick textbooks. And as I've said many times, they're really good. Now, of course, they comply with this very generic statement, which you'll find if you Google National Curriculum Hong Kong. But they are the reality of the National Curriculum in Hong Kong. They are, they are approved by the state. They are, they are spiral. They're informed by a Brunerian model of mathematics education. And they are really very good. I mean, they're very innovative. They're very forward-thinking. They use, really, the latest thinking in terms of spiral curriculum, in terms of the application of mathematics in in linked uh, activities. They make very clear the construct which is being acquired to the learner and to the parents, so parents can support the learner in the home. They are really good. And they're all in London, in uh, Dame Celia Hoyle's uh, Mathematics uh, Education Centre, And I commend them to you. They are incredibly good. But the point is, they are approved, and they are part of the curriculum strategy in that state. Similarly, in Singapore, there are state-approved textbooks. They're from a range of private providers. A school can make a choice. A school can make a choice not to use textbooks, but if they do use the textbook, then they have to use a state-approved one. And there is discussion and discourse between the, 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 the producers of the textbooks and the state in terms of the content. Um, in France, there's a very interesting position. Of course, Bonaparte talked about the importance of the same book being used at the same instant in time across all classrooms in France. Um, and in France, textbooks are approved. And then there is no change for a certain period of time. A school has to submit for local approval within the département and then up to the ministry um, its set of textbooks that it is going to use within its teaching it then has to stick to those textbooks for at least five years. Finland is fascinating. Now, Mary and I agree about the way in which transnational comparisons should be approached, i.e., we both agree they need to be approached with enormous amounts of caution and that cherry-picking is an extremely bad idea. It's worthwhile looking at other nations to understand the factors in play and to understand how things play out differently in different nations. But don't go around cherry-picking or borrowing because you're just going to get into trouble. You have to understand with sensitivity the culture and history of other nations. And my goodness, have people misread Finland because they're gone after the very high PISA results which Finland, Finland obtained and said, oh my goodness, that's what Finland looks like now. Therefore, that's what has given them high attainment. Therefore, that's what we need to do now too. 
Well, they've failed to notice that a, a system characterised by very high levels of school autonomy currently, uh, very, very light inspection, um, is, uh, was, was, are located in a system where quality was raised from very moribund performance during the 1960s and 1970s by a period of almost Stalinistic dirigis control from the centre. And that included state-approved textbooks. And it's a really salutary uh, lesson from history in Finland. Finland looks a certain way now and has, achieved, achieved, has attained very high standards, but it's achieved it through a particular t- trajectory of curriculum control. In Japan and South Korea, there are state-approved textbooks as a key control factor. It's very interesting in Japan. The textbooks were extremely thick. And again, you had to look at them to find the real enacted curriculum. Um, They wanted to open up what they called white space, as Singapore calls, white space in the curriculum, for greater teacher autonomy. And they reduced the degree of specification in the state-approved textbooks in Japan. What was interesting is that standards immediately fell in Japanese schools. What was weird is that they fell faster than could be explained by the use of the textbooks across the years of the schools. And they immediately then tightened up on the textbooks. There was panic, and they tightened up on the textbooks. And that's very interesting indeed, the notion of textbooks generally signalling through examination systems and through school systems. I could talk about that in a lot of detail, I won't. South Korea and Japan, very interesting in terms of the extent to which there have been demonstrations in South Korea about what is in the Japanese textbooks, the Manchurian Massacre and so on. Okay, about Alberta and Massachusetts, they have recommended lists, they're on the website, they're readily available, and in essence... You're not required as a school to use a particular text, but if you don't, there'll be serious questions asked by parents, by the local legislature, and so on. Singapore's a very interesting case, and we have Singapore publishers here today. There is an approval process. We've discussed it with the ministry. We're very familiar with it. It's very interesting. And, and both the ministry and the publishers themselves discuss the processes by which there can be enhancement of this approval process over time but it is undoubtedly the case that the linkage is used as a policy instrument. Why? Well, here we go. Just a few more minutes. These two concepts, which some of you have heard me talk about before from Schmidt and uh, Pravat's uh, work on TIMS, they looked at the highest-performing nations and poor-performing nations in TIMS. They found that the highest-performing nations possessed curriculum coherence. The poorer-performing ones did not. Curriculum coherence defined in two ways. One, appropriately age-related ordered material. And secondly, coherence across all the key drivers in the system. Inspection, funding, institutional form of schooling and so on. I'll put the control factors up in just a second. Um, but what's clear is that curriculum coherence is beginning to emerge as a policy instrument. You know, Greg Watson and I talked in 2006 about these things called, what, which we call curriculum projects, SMP Mathematics and Nuffield. The, this was at the time that, that Prowat and, uh, and, and, um, and, and Schmidt were doing this work. So they were theorising something we were just discussing pragmatically. We, we, we didn't see them as being manifestations of curriculum coherence. A bit more on curriculum coherence. What, what Schmidt says about this is that 
the moment you talk about curriculum control being necessary to bring curriculum coherence where everything lines up. Well, by the way, let's just look at where something doesn't line up. Okay, in the English system, if your primary schools spend the whole of the last year in narrow drilling for external tests, and that narrow drilling gives rise to a curriculum which is not consistent with the aims of the national curriculum, which it isn't, then you've got a prima facie example of curriculum incoherence. Okay? Or if the accountability arrangements pull examinations in a direction other than the one which you ha- of the general, other than the direction which would enable you to achieve the, the broad aims that you have for post-14, post-16 curriculum, then you have curriculum incoherence. Okay? So, you get curriculum coherence by having curriculum control. I've already talked about Finland. The moment you talk about control, everybody thinks that, oh, it must be top-down control. You know, control is exercised by ministries of schools. Not at all. Schmidt and Prawat have found that uh, different nations have very different forms of governance, and it's more that systems need to exercise control, not that individual agencies such as ministries should take control. You can get coherence in a system like Finland by very consensual arrangements. So what they say is this is not a debate which is sort of characterised by ideological argument. Okay. It's not regulation versus deregulation or public interest versus private interest. It's about whether through appropriate means in a particular historical time and in a particular cultural context you can organise agencies, interest groups, actors and so on, students and parents in such a way that you get curriculum coherence. And the point is that curriculum coherence is not just a trivial common sense term. Curriculum materials in high-performing nations focus on fewer topics but communicate the expectations that those topics will be taught in a deeper, more profound way. Crucial. And, of course, they are part of the whole picture of curriculum content, textbooks, teaching content, pedagogy, assessment, accountability, inspection, institutional forms of schools. Those are the control factors. And as I've said before, the national curriculum is just a tiny bit of factor one. So you can have a brilliant national curriculum, but it ain't going to have a jot of difference. It isn't going to make a jot of difference if the other control factors are not aligned in such a way that you realise the benefit. Okay. So, to conclude... Discussions in the select committee have indeed confronted key issues relating to the link, but they've seen it in terms of, oh my God, something terrible is happening. And sometimes, oh my God, something terrible is happening. Whose fault is it? Now what I hope I've indicated is you have to see it in systemic terms. You have to see it in terms of the relationships which obtain in our system now between those key control factors and how they're being managed. Okay. This is the right territory, I've said to them recently. But it's vital for our system that the select committee influence the system in a manner which is consistent with what we know from international research. And what I've said in the evidence which Cambridge Assessment has submitted to them recently, international studies make clear that introducing policy which breaks the link between textbooks, because it's bad, therefore we must separate the organisations or the people or the things, examinations and textbooks, we must separate them as much as possible because otherwise if we get them in close proximity they'll just be bad. 
The moment you think like that, it's at odds, it's contrary to what's happening in systems which have radically improved their performance. Think of Finland. So, of course, at its most extreme, a reaction against the current form of linkage in England might be there should be no link between textbooks and examinations. Well, that's patently absurd. So that immediately gives rise to the question, what is the right linkage? And I have a naive answer to it, well, one which, which delivers the right things. Broad and balanced curricula, a broad and balanced experience, and high standards. I'll finish on that. So what sort of link should be encouraged? Now, I haven't got a good and detailed answer to that, and I haven't got a good and detailed answer to, well, what forms of governance should we have? Because that's for debate today, and I hope will be you know, reflected in, in what the select committee is going to say. So I just believe that the history of our system and evidence from other education systems holds the answer. I think we should learn from SMP. I think we should learn from Nuffield. And what was interesting then is that, as I say, far from it, nobody felt, felt forced or blackmailed then. The linked materials and examinations charted a clear course through the concepts and knowledge at the heart of the programme, gave a clear structure around which teachers could design engaging lessons and did not encourage restrictive teaching. And I said in Could Do Better, crucially, critically, if a national curriculum must be refined then we've got to ensure that everything is lined up, including textbooks. And so we've discussed with ministers the importance, not not of saying to textbook producers, oh, by the way, we've written an entirely new curriculum and, and here it is and you've got a couple of months to write some textbooks. No, textbooks are part of the picture. They are a key control factor. And without this, curriculum coherence and entitlement, our, our curriculum aims will not be achieved. Now, Arinka Suto and colleagues here, Jill, um, uh, Nikki, and uh, Sanjana. Oh, Harriet Rushton. No, it's, it's Nikki Rushton. Um, have, have done a study which begins to cast light on that, going beyond the syllabus, a study of A-level mathematics teachers and students. We just looked at who, who taught beyond the syllabus, who said they were teaching beyond the syllabus, and who thought it was a good idea. And the point is, we then looked at what they were achieving, and it was high-performing teachers in high-performing institutions that said that that was desirable and functional in terms of gaining high examination results, completely contrary to the notion that you will attain high results by narrowing. Now, this is really important stuff, and we've only just begun to really scratch the surface of this, but this is important. Now, if we can have textbooks which do that, if we can have a national curriculum which is here, a school curriculum which is here, and this space that it was within the autonomy of schools and teachers informed by high-quality materials, then we're getting there. What I believe we should do is use the link between textbooks and examinations as a policy instrument in its own right. Rather than say any link is going to be bad, we have to sort out what the link should look like in order to give the outcomes which we desire. Far better, I say, to concentrate on the need for linkage and the quality of the materials. In conclusion particularly in the light of what we know about the fact that MIT are writing brilliant materials in physics, that indeed some bizarre Chilean mathematics educator may suddenly come up with something extraordinary and suddenly disseminate it through the web. How on earth would we regulate that out of Whitehall? How could we? Now, I think that it's a bit like Norman Foster and Cities. I think what should happen is that if lousy material, of which there will be, enormous quantities appears on the internet 
then it should be students, teachers, parents and educators who say, that's lousy material, because they've totally internalised quality criteria. Just as in urban areas, people know how to behave well, even though they don't necessarily know all the detail of how they know that. In other words, systems become self-policing. Control is not necessarily exercised from the centre or the top down, but it's exercised through internal self-discipline, through a set of values shared by a community, which, do, which just don't tolerate bad behaviour or poor materials. And I think that's incredibly challenging. So I think we need to think radically about the kind of materials we want to, be, we want to use in schools. I think we need to exploit the relationship between learning materials and examinations. And we should use evidence from other jurisdictions and the history of their improvement to manage correctly an appropriate linkage between materials to secure true curriculum coherence. And this is the nub of the matter. Not so to do would be to diminish our chances of enhancing the performance of the education system to achieve the levels to which we should aspire and which, through evidence-based policy, we could attain. That's the key point. If we just say we've done a good job by stopping people doing terrible things, we won't have done what we could do to actually raise attainment to the levels which I think we could attain. Thank you very much indeed. And Mary, if I could invite you to come along this point. Thank you. Right, so good afternoon, everyone. I'm delighted to be here in these August surroundings and to be debating with my good friend Tim. And I always enjoy debates with Tim because we are respectful of each other's positions, even when we don't agree, and uh, we're not going to agree this afternoon. <laughs> this respect does not, of course, and Tim would not expect this, to reduce robust debate. And I confidently expect that that's what we're all here for. Now, Tim has outlined very, very cautiously, carefully and very well his case for the closer alignment of textbooks uh, to examinations. And he has acknowledged at the beginning of his talk that there are fundamental and necessary issues and questions to be asked about the links, the current links between uh, exam boards, exam preparation, support materials, CPD, uh, in-service training for teachers... Uh, And I will come back to these issues later in my talk this afternoon. But I will argue first that we are perhaps not asking quite the right question here. I would argue that we need to ask a more fundamental question in order to understand the ways in which carefully argued positions can get reduced into the support of ineffective educational practice. So my question is this. How would Tim's systems of control translate into the English education system as it is practised, governed and policed uh, today. I argue that what Tim has so reasonably and carefully articulated would, I fear, in today's high-stakes, league-table-obsessed and policed education system result actually in an ever-narrower curriculum, ever more teaching to the test and further degradation of teacher performance And it would create new peaks of performativity, a perfect alignment of all elements of teaching, learning and assessment to achieve the best test results. Now, the real question is, what have been the results of this approach in the last 20 years? And we don't have to look uh, to other jurisdictions to get some really clear answers. We have had, actually, this approach in England. And it's very interesting that Tim's referred to control factors 
and he acknowledges that control factors exist in complex relations and balances. In England, over the last 20 years, the control factors completely overrule the factors that led or would lead to a healthy, innovative and properly professional approach to teaching, learning and assessment. And Robin Alexander uh, summarises these controls very well in one of a series of articles on this issue. So he summarises a national literacy and numeracy strategy which prescribed in detail not just the content but also the methods of daily literacy and numeracy lessons to be taught in every school in England. A sustained avalanche of curriculum support materials, 459 government documents on the teaching of literacy alone were issued to schools during the eight years from 1996 to 2004, over one a week, not to mention comparable materials on numeracy and much else besides. The extension of the national testing regime at 7 and 11 to include targets for the percentage of 11-year-olds who should achieve the specified literacy and numeracy levels by 2002 and each year after that. The publication of annual school-by-school test results and inter-school league tables. A national inspection system which checks schools for compliance with the strategies and named and shamed those not up to scratch. Ring-fenced funding to support in-service courses for teachers in areas of uh, policy priority and the extension of the powers of national bodies and the tightening of government control over them. These elements are all listed in Tim's control factors. So we have had coherence, not I would argue, of the curriculum, I will come back to that too, but of subject content, pedagogy and testing, not assessment And I'll come back to that too. And what was the result of all these control factors? Control which cost over two billion of taxpayers' money from 1998 to 2008. And again, I quote from the most authoritative source on this subject, the Cambridge Review, which said, a summary of its findings, within the limitations and variations of the measures used, standards of tested pupil attainment were fairly stable over time. The national data showed modest improvements in primary mathematics standards, especially since 1995, although different data sets told different stories. Gains in reading skills were sometimes at the extent of pupils' enjoyment of reading. There was some evidence of increased in test-induced stress amongst primary pupils and much firmer stress amongst their teachers at the same time. The primary curriculum narrowed in direct response to the perceived demands of the testing regime and the national strategies, to the extent that in many schools, children's statutory entitlement to a broad and balanced curriculum was seriously compromised. Now, Tim knows all of this, and indeed he's referred to it in his talk, and he would argue that it doesn't need to be like this, and that's what he's argued tonight. It could be done a lot better. And I agree, it could be done a lot better. But I would argue that this is perhaps a rather naive position. The cult of national and international cherry-picking, not analysis, is rife amongst our politicians who, along with their newly appointed chief inspector, cheerfully argue that we are plummeting down the Pisa Lee tables, notwithstanding that such statements stand no statistical analysis. They are powerful, and they are powerfully used to demean and diminish teachers. They are used also to bypass complex questioning 
and result in politicians looking at the wrong end of the telescope. For example, Leighton Andrews, the Minister for Education in Wales, in saying, if you want to get better results in PISA, then make PISA the the curriculum, make the PISA test items the curriculum. In effect, that's completely, look at the test and then devise the curriculum, not, as Tim has argued, doing the other way around. Now, of course, it could be done differently, but in the high stakes, high accountability, high test, highly policed system that we have in England, then it's very, very difficult to see how the more balanced and much more nuanced position that Tim advocates could possibly come about. And here it's where um, I would argue that, and the evidence is overwhelming, politicians rush to exert levers of control that always, always have damagingly perverse side effects. We should be very careful not to give politicians ammunition. This government administration, in particular, would love to have knowledge carefully codified, defined and contained in a textbook so that all pupils learn. And this administration has no concept of a real process of learning. But so that all pupils would learn the best that has been thought and said. And we all know where that gets us. It is important not to legislate for a perfect world, but to live in the real world. And let me be clear... In ATL's view and in my view, high-stakes testing perverts all assessment systems, national and international. It provides an ever-increasing disconnect between real learning, which makes connections and links between lived and learned experience, and what happens in schools, in so many schools, where real learning is driven out by test preparation and practice. And in this process... And this is one of my key points tonight. The crucial element of teacher agency is damaged and in many cases destroyed. The projects that Tim praises from the 1980s, Nuffield Science and SMP Maths, has, as he acknowledges, all extensively had teacher input. It was teachers getting together, wanting to devise new curricula to meet the needs of new groups of students. Teacher input into curriculum development, and in particular national curriculum development, is derisory, contained within consultation seminars run by the DfE. Consider we have at present a national curriculum being written by civil servants, whose efforts are being marked by subject experts. Where is the proper professional involvement of teachers? We should consider carefully the implications of this, both for the curriculum and the profession, for pedagogy and for pupils. So what is ATL's position? It is radical, but I put it forward unashamedly. Our position is that we do support a national curriculum, an entitlement for all pupils up to the age of 18. We argue that the national curriculum should be built around core concepts, skills and areas of knowledge. But we argue that this national framework should be locally interpreted and that teachers should have the freedom to use local and topical examples to illustrate, develop, and engage pupils in central contexts that they have to learn. In this scenario, textbooks would have a place. They would not have the place. ATL argues that pupils in England are manically over-tested, and that whilst we have the best exam boards in the world, and they are renowned as such, with validity reliability and consistency rightly cherished by them, this over-testing does nothing to raise the standard of teaching and learning. 
and greater coherence of textbooks and exams is not going to provide employers and school leavers with the soft skills which are not developed in education systems with such testing imbalances. The skills of resilience, communication, investigation, teamwork. The crucial skill, the crucial skill, which really gets middle-class kids on in the world and really harms working-class kids in terms of social mobility, the crucial skill of empathy, reliability. I could go on. And this, to go back to a point I made earlier, is what I mean when I say curriculum coherence as opposed to subject coherence. A whole curriculum with proper emphasis on these skills and a broad and balanced diet of subjects, including the creative subjects, which are essential for proper learning, proper pupil engagement and development. Some of these can be tested in only a very limited way, if at all, by written exams or promoted by textbooks. And for others... Written exams and textbooks are completely unsuitable. You can't examine empathy. Well, you might be able to do in English literature, but it's a pretty mannered examination of empathy. It's actually something which is demonstrated in the way we interact and where we, we understand others. Now, let me turn to the all-important PISA and what it tells us about the best-performing education systems. And here, I unashamedly make a wider point than the title of this seminar implies. Tim has told us, and he's demonstrated very clearly, uh, about what about... Um, and, it's, you know, absolutely, you know, you've given very detailed examples uh, that these systems, these best-performing systems, have a close congruence of textbooks and um, examinations. But let's also look at what Singapore, Hong Kong, Finland and Alberta also have. The Singaporean school state school system has just 356 schools. All other top-performing countries apart from Japan have small school systems, culturally homogenous societies and crucially, and this is true of Japan also, much smaller levels of wealth inequality than England, which has, let me remind you, 20,000 schools. It's strange that these factors do not feature in government presentations of PISA performance. They should. It is my contention that wealth inequality is by far the greatest contributor to educational standards and educational inequality than any other factor. In this contention, I am supported by a wealth of educational research, but let me just quote one, Wilson and Pickett's. Uh, their groundbreaking reassessment of the international data on income, health, education and social well-being, uh, which concluded that more equal societies are not only happier but more successful. And this is the key point, and I'll say this twice. Um, more equal societies are not only happier but more successful, and the relationship is causal rather than coincidental. I'll say that again. The relationship is causal rather than coincidental. Turning to Singapore, I am grateful to David Hogan, who is about to publish an extensive study on the structure of instructional practices in Singapore that includes measures for textbook focus and exam preparation. In summary, David Hogan finds that the use of textbooks clearly captures the logic of instructional practice in Singapore. However, he concludes that the assessment system and the textbook focus in Singaporean classrooms severely limits the opportunity and willingness of teachers to engage in significant instructional 
innovation. In general, his conclusion is that whilst the current instructional system was designed to place a floor on the quality of instructional practice and has successfully succeeded in doing so, it now places a ceiling on the capacity of the system to innovate and improve. It's, it's placed, you know, the floor's there, but so is the ceiling now on the capacity of the Singaporean system to innovate and improve. And that, I would argue for any system, is a grave danger and not a good outcome. Hogan is not alone in the, cons- in the concern about systems' ability to innovate and improve. The OECD's most recent compendium of international evidence on teachers and school leaders and the status of the teaching profession um, is very, very interesting. And in it, um, Andrea Schleider writes, The kind of teaching needed today requires teachers to be high-level knowledge workers who constantly advance their own professional knowledge as well as that of their profession. But people who see themselves as knowledge workers are not attracted by schools organised like an assembly line with teachers working as interchangeable widgets in a bureaucratic command and control environment. And yet, for teachers all over the developed world, that is too often what it feels like to work in education. And further, the OECD report finds that whilst innovative teaching is recognised in both school evaluations and teacher appraisal systems in many countries, it is sobering to learn that three out of four teachers who responded to the OECD Teaching and Learning International Survey, TALIS, in 2008, reported that they would not be rewarded for being more innovative in their teaching. The incentives for encouraging innovation appear to be missing. That's what the OECD says, and I agree, they do indeed. Uh, appear to be missing, the incentives to be innovative. So I fear, Tim, that in in your high-control, high-accountability environments, your proposals could add to the dead weight of control upon teachers and pupils. And finally, to really, really answer the question set to us, after my ronda around other contingent issues, of course, better textbooks, which link their content to exams, would be welcome. If, and only if, and Tim said this, their content is good, and if the exams are good, and crucially, I would argue, if exams are not all that is to be really said and valued about attainment and assessment in a subject. I would argue that we do need to be very careful about implying a causal link between one feature of a system and its success in international surveys, which themselves... And people forget this. The international surveys are themselves selective in their evidence as to what counts as success. The success of Singapore might be based on close congruence of textbooks and exams, but surely the fact that the majority of parents in Singapore pay for private tutors for test preparation is another issue. The percentage of parents in Singapore who pay for private tuition is way above what we have in England. My key point, and Kin's also, is we cannot simply take one variable and say, ha-ha, that's the way to do it. And to finish, nearly finish, some questions which exercise my members, ATL members, when they consider exams, exam support and exam preparation. And they ask, how do we ensure fairness? 
If we believe textbooks are a crucial part of teaching, then should schools be expected to be included when they pay their fees to awarding organisations for their exams and syllabuses? Are we talking about textbooks for teachers to use or for every pupil to have a copy of? And who is it should pay for the latter, schools or parents? Then there are questions of propriety. ATL members have also raised questions of organisations or their employees um, you know, selling products for profit and marketing them as near essential. Does curriculum lead assessment, or at the moment is it the other way around, assessment and indeed testing leading the curriculum? Are textbooks to aid teaching useful and engaging curricula that develop skills as well as knowledge? Or are they as guides to passing exams? An assessment shouldn't be at the beginning of our concerns when we think about curriculum coherence or subject coherence. It is interesting that the British Academy's evidence to the Select Committee, to the Education Select Committee, raises several issues, and it is challenging, but it is um, something that we might want to discuss later. So the British Academy says, and I quote, commercial activities can present particular issues in other ways. For example, the involvement of organisations in different educational areas, curriculum advice, examination administration, textbook provision, may lead to competing interests. It is understandable that the expertise of individuals and organisations in sectors is shared and transferred, and that involvement extended to many areas, some of which may overlap. Where this happens, it is important that appropriate organisations, such as this committee, the Education Select Committee, are able to scrutinise adequately activity to avoid any perception of conflict of interest. This may occur through boards strongly promoting textbooks linked to exam curricula, with the risk that diversity of textbook materials becomes constrained. I do think that's a risk, that diversity of textbook materials becoming strange. The, 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 uh, the Academy goes on to say, such questions may be doubly pertinent when we know that the government has talked about making greater use of standardised textbooks to ensure that schools comply with national curriculum requirements. Its advisors have also recommended that the content of English, England's national curriculum be benchmarked against the curriculum of educationally high-performing jurisdictions, including Singapore. Um, however, given that, um, that the marketing of examinations, qualifications and associated textbooks and teacher support materials is both a major financial operation and intensely competitive, both nationally and globally, the integrity of the examination system and its providers might best be demonstrated if the not-for-profit administration of examinations is entirely separate from commercial activities such as textbook production, and if both are detached from policy leadership on the issues in question. In other words, no one's saying there should be a complete disconnect between textbooks and exams, but there do need to be safeguards. And Tim started with, there is a problem, and the British Academy is saying, yes, and there do need to be safeguards. It does need to be regulated. I'm going to finish with a visual reference. Escher's woodcut of the monks walking up the complex spiral staircase and they walk down again and they walk back up again. And in the middle of the woodcut, there's two monks who are giggling with each other. They've got off the treadmill and they're giggling with each other. But you know that they're going to be caught out and they're going to be given double punishment. It's a hermetically sealed world. Um, teachers... I have to say, feel that they are on this treadmill. They need more freedom to innovate. 
Pupils need more assessment and much less testing. We need to refocus on the hard granularity of pedagogy and less on the codified knowledge presented in textbooks. We need teachers to be innovators and experimenters. They do not need more control. Thank you. This is a podcast from Cambridge Assessment. For more downloads, visit cambridgeassessment.org.uk.